Welcome to Frontline Church South OKC Sermon Podcast. Each week we will have new sermon content from Sunday mornings, both video and audio options. Please visit south.frontlinechurch.com for more information. If you have any questions, need prayer, or have any other needs at all, please email hello at frontlinechurch.com. Thank you so much for tuning in. Scripture for today's sermon comes from Genesis 2, 5 through 8, and verse 15. The Word of God speaks to us. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. This is God's word to us. Thanks be to God. Hey, good morning. You guys can grab a seat. Uh, welcome to Frontline. If we've not met, my name is Andrew. I get to serve as one of our pastors here. It's great to have you with us today. Uh, hey, I want to say thank you so much for praying for me and my wife, uh, Hillary. We were able to go uh, serve some sister churches in North Carolina last week. So we went to Fayetteville, and in Fayetteville, there's this military base called Fort Bragg. It's where a lot of the special forces units are, are based out of. And uh, our, our good friend and, and, and the guy who planted a sister church of ours, John Murphy, uh, has, has planted a church called Frontline Fayetteville. And it was so fun. We got to do some leadership trainings there. My wife got to lead worship. I preached on Sunday. Uh, God was moving in some really special ways. It was, it was good for them and good for us. And I, so I just want to bring greetings from them to you. They feel our prayers. We pray for them quite a bit on Sundays. And uh, it was so fun. The room was absolutely packed out. And this is a brand new church plant. And it is the most terrifying church to ever preach at because like half of the church is Delta Force, you know, and just there's Green Berets in the church and Rangers. And it was, abs- it was like the safest I've ever felt being in a church context. Uh, so that was, that was fun. And then we went over to Moorhead City, which is on the coast about three hours away. And some good friends of ours planted a church called One Harbor there that now has five different congregations. And One Harbor is crazy because he planted this church in a town of 10,000 people, and there's about 2,300 people that attend this church. So uh, over 20% of his town attends this church. And he's not a sellout. Like, he loves Jesus. They preach the Bible like crazy. Uh, Donnie and Jill are doing great work with their teams there. So we got to visit and hang out and see what they're doing. So just... It was fun for me and my wife, and it was good for them, so thanks for sending me. Thanks for letting me be gone last week. Uh, It's good to be back. So if you have a Bible, Genesis chapter 2 is where we're going to be, and I'll take a second and pray for us, and then we'll jump in. Also, when we pray, pray for Brandon Leib, one of our pastors, who this morning is at a church called The Well in Mustang. He's serving The Well this morning, leading worship out there for them. So let's pray for them as as we open up the Word together. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for the gift that it is to be with your people to, to be under the word, to, uh, to be shaped and formed again and again. We pray for that, God. We pray that the spirit today would conform us more and more into your truth. 
in a day and age that talks about my truth, your truth. Father, what we want is to lay it all down, and we want your truth. We want what is, is, is uh, in your heart for us in our lives. And, and today, God, we pray for Brandon. We pray as he's serving at the well, God, we pray that that church would be blessed, that they would continue in faithfulness. God, we pray that you would raise up leaders, that you'd provide every need that they have. God, we pray that people who are far from God would find a home in the well in Mustang. We pray that you'd bless that church. And then today, I, I specifically want to pray for the, the people in the room who were singing the songs or at least looking at the lyrics of the songs that we sang today and don't believe it or struggle to believe it. I pray that you would meet them today. Meet them in your love. Meet them in your kindness. Thank you that you do not turn away doubters, but you actually meet us in our doubts. So would you do that today in Jesus' name? Amen. Amen. So uh, this summer series that we've been in is a series called Rhythms of Grace. And what we're doing is we're basically taking these ancient practices, things that Christians have always done to build rhythms and habits in their lives of what it looks like to follow Jesus, what it looks like to make your home in God, to abide in Christ. And what we're going to talk about today is one that I have not been able to find in any book or any sermon series or any, uh, any, any it never shows up in any list of any classic spiritual disciplines or practices. And it's really sad and unfortunate because it's one of the most common and actually one of the most profound. And that is a Christian practice of work. What we're talking about today is actually work as a spiritual discipline that we build into our lives to grow in love for Jesus, to be formed and shaped by Jesus. So that's what we're talking about. And, and, and when I say work, I'm saying any and all type of work. You can be part-time or full-time. You can be a stay-at-home mom or a student. You can be an employer who hires and fires people. You can be a small business owner, oil and gas industry, school teacher, the tech industry. It doesn't matter. Whatever work means to you, that's what we're talking about today is our relationship to work. And here's what's immediately obvious when we talk about work is our relationship to work often has two very broken common approaches. Here's the first approach that you and I often fall into. We think of ourselves as productivity machines, productivity machines. When you meet someone for the first time and after you've gotten their name, what is the very first question that you ask every time? Hey, what is it that you do? What, what is it that you do? And that's a great question. Part of that question is rooted in curiosity. I want to know about you because knowing about what you do is helping me understand who you are. But it's interesting, isn't it, that often even in our culture, what you do is directly tied to the value that you have. That if I answer that question with, well, I'm a doctor, then I somehow have more value in society than if I answer that question, oh, I'm a stay-at-home dad or mom or whatever. Like, that, that is seen as more valuable to be the doctor than to be the stay-at-home mom often in our culture. What we do is intrinsically tied into how valuable we are. It's tied into our identity. And so we, we view ourselves as like, if I can produce quite a bit, then I have a lot of value and, and I'm essential to society. We all remember when COVID shut us down and people were even putting these stickers on their cars like, I'm an essential worker, which is a weird thing to brag about, you know? But that's what we do as a culture. We brag about being essential because it's tied into our identity. The problem with that is that what do you do when a machine breaks? You just throw it away or you replace it. So often we view ourselves as productivity machines, but the dark side of that, the shadow side of that is when you fail to produce or when you don't have a job, you don't have value. 
productivity machines. The second approach that is probably maybe more common or at least more subtly true of, of you and I is we view ourselves as pleasure machines, pleasure machines. So uh, work for us is simply a means to the end of consumption. I have a job because it's a necessary evil to get the things that I want to do in life. I have items I want to purchase. I have things that I want to buy. I have experiences that I want to enjoy. So I do what I do so that I can enjoy those other good pleasures of life. Work simply becomes something that you do to get the toys that you want. It becomes something you do to get the life that you dream of and sort of live on perpetual vacation mode once you achieve enough of what your job is going to offer you in, the term, in terms of money and wealth. This is often how we think of our work. Oh, I just show up and I do what I have to do so that I can do all the other things. It's really fascinating. Wendell Berry has this line in The Unsettling of America that I thought was really interesting. He says, there's nothing more absurd, to give an example that is only apparently trivial, than the millions who wish to live in luxury and idleness and yet be slender and good-looking. We have millions, too, whose livelihoods, amusements, and comforts are all destructive, who nevertheless wish to live in a healthy environment. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, if you could have the life that you really want, if you could have the type of chill, like, I just want to sit on the couch and eat potato chips and watch, binge watch Netflix, what's wrong with that? And also, I want to have a six-pack and be incredibly good-looking and healthy, you know? And, and this is often our approach. It's like, we want this life out here that we can just kind of binge and unplug and enjoy, and work is just seen as the necessary evil barrier that we have to do to get the life that we really want. Our relationship to work is jacked up. It doesn't matter if you view yourself as a productivity machine or as a pleasure machine. Our, our relationship to work is really messed up. We underwork and then we overwork. We neglect what's most important in life for the jobs that we have. We show up and we do shoddy work. We show up and we don't give it our all. We don't actually work with intentionality or work becomes everything that we are. Our relationship to work is really bizarre and as Dolly Parton put it in her most punk rock song ever, working nine to five, yeah, they got you where they want you. There's a better life and you dream about it, don't you? It's a rich man's game, no matter what they call it, and you spend your life putting money, does anybody know the rest of the line? Money in their wallet, right? Okay, so now that I've quoted from Wendell Berry and Dolly Parton, I kind of feel like I could just retire as a pastor and be done. This is great. What, what are, what's the point? What are we talking about with work and work as a spiritual practice? Well, here's the most essential question that you need to ask and that I need to ask if we're going to understand this. Ironically, the most important question is not what is work for? The most essential question, the deepest question is what are people for? Amen. And when you understand what people are for, that's going to ha actually have an impact on what you understand work and the meaning of work to be there for. So what are people for? Well, let's open up the word and look at it together. I actually think uh, one of the reasons why I'm a Christian is because of the answer to this question. It's one of the most plausible, realistic, hope-filled question and answer that Christianity offers to this question that I've been able to find. So Genesis chapter 1, let me just start in chapter 1 and read verse 26, and this is really interesting. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. 
and let them have dominion, notice that word, dominion, over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image and the image of God he created him, male and female, he created them. Verse 28, notice this line. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Again, notice that line, subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Go to chapter 2. This is the text that we just read a minute ago. Look at verse 5. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land. And notice this line. And there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And what's the first thing that God does? And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had, excuse me, whom he had formed. Why? Look at verse 15. Why did he put the man there? The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. This totally ruined my perspective of what life was like before the fall and what God would do when he uh, brought the new heavens and new earth to us one day. Like this totally ruined it. Because growing up, I thought that work was definitely a part of the fall. Like the reason we have jobs is because we sinned and had we not sinned, we could have lived on a perpetual vacation. I sort of envisioned Adam and Eve like spending their time in the Garden of Eden like a sandals resort. And that was God's intention for humanity from day one is like, hey, we're just going to be hanging out and sitting on the beach and eating wild fruit. And that's, that's like how God wanted our lives to go. And then we sinned and now we have to go to work every day. And this is really frustrating. And one day Jesus is going to come back and, and, and heaven is going to be like this place where no longer will we have to work. We'll die and we'll finally be able to rest and we'll get to experience just a perpetual eternal vacation. But actually, friends, this blows up that whole idea. Here's the first thing I want you to see is that you and I were created for work. You're actually created for work. Or let me get a little bit more specific. In Genesis 1, God created humans to be his image bearers. What does that mean, to be an image bearer of God? That means that you and I were created to represent God in the world to reflect God in the world. In other words, we are walking around on planet earth as his representatives and co-rulers underneath his authority. That God is, he could have just like done this whole thing called planet earth on his own without our help, and yet he doesn't work that way. He created you and I to be his image bearers, to bear his image, to reign and rule on his behalf over all things. He plants this garden, and everything else on planet earth is like this wild, untamed creation. He plants this beautiful garden, and he puts humanity there, and he says, I want you to work this. I want you to keep this. I want you to rule over it. I want you to subdue it. 
all the little things like the fish of the sea and the birds of the, the heavens and, and, and the plants, you are now responsible to cultivate and work and keep this in such a way that eventually the Garden of Eden is going to spread over the whole world as the waters cover the sea, so the presence and the reign of God will spread over the whole earth. Does that make sense? You were created to rule and reign and subdue the world. You were created for work. Theologians have called this the cultural mandate. One author defines the cultural mandate like this. God ordained humanity to be the primary instrument by which his kingship will be realized on earth. The great king has summoned each of us into his throne room. Imagine God telling you this. Take this portion of my kingdom, he says. I am making you my steward over your office, your workbench, your kitchen. Your, I'm sorry, your kitchen stove. Put your heart into mastering this part of my world. Get it in order. Unearth its treasures. Do all you can with it. Then everyone will see what a glorious king I am. That's why we get up every morning and go to work. We don't labor simply to survive. Insects do that. Our work is an honor, a privileged commission from our great king. God has given each of us a portion of his kingdom to explore and to develop into its fullness. Friends, work is not a result of the fall. You are created to work. This totally changes our perspective. Work was actually his intention and his plan with making you. That means, if that's true, that the 168 hours in your week are not all secular hours that are disconnected from the heart of God and actually encountering his presence. What that means is that the hour on Sunday is somehow not more special or more beautiful or more important in what you do for God and the 167 other hours in your week. That there's a real way that you should see work as a spiritual practice right alongside of things like prayer and Bible reading and fasting and silence and solitude and Sabbath. Work should be added to the list of something that we do to both encounter the presence of God and to partner with God in the world and to be shaped into more of his image. This is why God has given us work. Nancy Piercy articulates this really well. She says, the ideal human existence is not eternal leisure or an endless vacation or even a monastic retreat into prayer and meditation, but creative effort expended for the glory of God and the benefit of others. Our calling, listen to this, is not just to, quote, go to heaven, but also to cultivate the earth. Not just to, quote, save souls, but also to serve God through our work. For God himself is engaged not only in the work of salvation, but also in the work of preserving and developing his creation. When we obey the cultural mandate, we participate in the work of God himself. So I want you to think about your job. Think about what you do. Think about what you spend your time doing. The, 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 whether you love it or hate it, enjoy it or not, that was given to you by God himself and it inherently has dignity and worth and there's a way that you can actually connect your 167 hours in the rest of your week with your relationship to God. Now, if that's true, and my first point's done, by the way, you were created for work, point one. If that's true, can I just ask the blunt question, why does work suck so bad, right? Right? <laughs> 
If that's really true, if God gave us work, why does it suck so bad? And can I just be honest, even if you have your dream job, there are some of you in the room that are currently doing your dream job, and you're like, yeah, my job still sucks, though. Like, if I didn't have to do it, I probably, you know, yeah, I might do it some days, but there are days, even in the best job in the world, where you go, yeah, I don't like this, and I don't like that, and this is really frustrating. Why does work suck so bad? Well, here's the second thing I want you to see, the brokenness of work. So yeah, we were created for work, but work has been profoundly broken. Instead of embracing God's design for humanity, Adam and Eve, you know the story, in Genesis 3, rejected God. And it's so much more than them taking a bite of a piece of fruit that God didn't like. It has nothing to do with that. All of that, at, at its very core, whether it really happened or not, is, that, that's a debate for another time, at its very core is a symbolic act of rebellion and treason. God, we don't need you, we don't trust you, we don't want you. We don't want to be co-rulers, we want to be the rulers. So instead of being underneath your authority, we're gonna branch out and become our own authority. That's what's happening when Adam and Eve reach out and grab the fruit. And notice the first thing that happens when Adam and Eve sin. Verse 17 of chapter three. And to Adam, God said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles shall bring forth to you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken, for you are dust and to dust you shall return. Friends, notice one of the effects of the fall. It dramatically affects our relationship to work. Instead of worshiping God and cultivating creation, the transition that happens here is that we begin to worship creation and try to get that to replace God. Instead of cultivating creation and enjoying it as a gift, now we make it ultimate, the end, the point, the whole reason we exist is for this creation. And when that happens, work becomes profoundly broken. Instead of, instead of work cooperating with you, it begins to wage war on you and fight against you and oppress you. And even the good things that you try to do in the world fight at you at every turn. I mean, how many of you have like, well, maybe you haven't had to mow your lawn because it's been 140 degrees and grass can't survive in this type of heat. Neither can humans. Why do we live here? Right? So, so, have you ever like done something really hard outside and cultivated your garden and mowed the lawn and like another seven days or 14 days pass and you're like, nah, it's just waging war against you. Or you build something and it begins to break over time. Or you bring order to something and it fights against you. Or you try to do something good at your job and it's difficult and complicated and there's red tape everywhere and you don't understand why things have to be so difficult. Friends, work is filled with thorns and thistles. And we react in two ways to the curse of work. The first is we overwork. And this is our effort to like, hey, we're gonna dominate our jobs. We're gonna control in such a way. We're gonna master our own fate and and, and gain control over this thing that has become so filled with thorns and thistles. So work over time, if we're not careful, becomes the place where we look for significance, for security, for meaning, identity, pleasure, I mean, some of you in this room, when you're performing really well at your job, your worth and security and identity are really high. 
When you are failing or struggling at your job, you're walking around profoundly insecure because your identity is rooted in, if I can just work hard enough, if I can just be enough, if I can just do this, then my life will matter and I'll be enough. Americans love to overwork. The 40-hour work week is a thing of the past. 86% of Americans work over 45 hours a, hours a week now. Uh, there, there's this really interesting word in Japanese called karoshi, and karoshi literally means death by overworking. And it's talking about this phenomenon that in the last two decades in Japan, there have been people that have literally, because they're overworking, they've literally dropped dead at their job due to stress or like heart failure or whatever, they've just fallen dead at their job because of overwork. So they invented this word called karoshi to describe this phenomenon in Japan. But do you know what's crazy? Is that Americans work on average around 137 hours more per year than the Japanese. Around 260 hours more per year than the British. And somehow, not surprisingly, 499 more hours than the French each year, right? It's not shocking to anybody, but we're outworking the French. But it's so, so crazy, like America just, we love to overwork. We, lo- we don't know what to do with our hands when we have rest. The other thing that happens, though, is not overworking. It's the running the complete opposite direction into underwork. Here's some data from a Gallup poll just that I find sad as someone who works with people. Like, this is so sad that this is true of our world right now. Only 13% of employees are engaged in their jobs or emotionally invested in their work and focused on helping their organizations improve. The Gallup poll also said 63% are, quote, not engaged. What that means is they're simply not motivated and unlikely to exert any extra effort for their employer. And then around 24% are actively disengaged or truly unhappy and unproductive. Any bosses in here? Anyone who like oversees people has like you're a direct report for people? Yeah. Isn't that really sad and infuriating that there are people that work for you that they're literally punching the clock? And actually, some of us in here, we're just punching the clock. We show up, it's like, I just want to get this over with as quickly as I can and get on with my life because there's no way that this is my life. We underwork. Why? Work is hard, that's why. It fights against you. It's cursed because of sin, thorns and thistles. So we fantasize about this utopian job out there that if I could just get this job, then I could be truly happy. If I could just find my calling and run in my lane, then I could be secure. Work is just a necessary evil. Friends, our relationship to work is profoundly busted. And here's the good news. The good news is that Jesus didn't just come to save our souls. He did do that, and that's a big deal but he actually came to redeem all of life, including our work. And that leads me to the third thing I want you to see, which is the redemption of work. He could have stayed in heaven and just kind of left us to flail about underneath the curse of our sin, to kind of live the rest of our lives uh, warring against this curse and the curse warring against us. And yet here's what we read in Galatians chapter three. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How did he do it? By becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through 
faith. This is a loaded verse, and I wish we had more time to unpack it, but the short version is this, that Jesus came to actually bring his blessing, as the Christmas carol says, as far as the curse is found. And the curse is found in our relationship to sin. The curse is found also in our relationship to work. That Jesus came and he didn't just live perfectly for us to forgive us and redeem us so that we could have a right relationship with God, but Jesus also came to give us a right relationship with his creation as well, and that includes our jobs. That includes our world. What that means is that when Jesus hung on the cross and took the weight of our sin, and when Jesus took the curse in our place, that he's doing something that profoundly reorients all of life, including our work and how I relate to my job, because no longer am I just left flailing about to over overwork or underwork or have this creation warring against me at every turn. But now through Jesus, all of life is redeemed, including jobs. Now I can work in a new way with a new master and a new purpose and a new identity. This changes everything. You see, Jesus didn't just live perfectly for you. Here's the good news, friends. He also worked perfectly for you. He had the right relationship to his job that you and I need to be given to us as a gift. Dorothy Sayers says it this way, no crooked table legs or ill-fitting drawers ever, I dare swear, came out of the carpenter's shop at Nazareth. Nor if they did, could anyone believe that they were made by the same hand that made heaven and earth. Friends, don't forget that Jesus lived 30 years in obscurity, not doing anything that we might call ministry or sacred or whatever. He was just working a Joe job with his dad. And that profoundly redeems the way that you and I think about even the mundane aspects of our job. Jesus, in those 30 years, taught us how to live and work in a way that we're actually working for the Father. Jesus taught us how to actually walk in our jobs with intentionality, realizing that, hey, this was his plan from day one, to be created, to subdue the earth and have dominion and rule on his behalf. And what he goes on to do is he infuses every part of our lives and our jobs with spiritual significance and meaning. This is why Paul in Colossians 3 verse 17 says this. I love this line. Think about your life and listen to these words. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Some of you are like, ah, yeah, but maybe that's just like in general. He doesn't mean my job too. Well, then look at what he goes on to say in Colossians 3, verse 23. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Whatever you do. Are you a stay-at-home mom? Work heartily as for the Lord. Are you a computer engineer? Work heartily. Are you an oil and gas? Are you a nurse or a doctor? What is, are you a part-time what, a student? What, what is it that you do? It doesn't matter if you love it or hate it. Your real boss is Jesus. Work heartily for him. Well, look at what it goes on to say. Knowing that from the Lord, you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Christian, if you're a Christian in the room, you do not work for a paycheck. Do you get that? You work for the pleasure of Jesus Christ. You do what you do for his pleasure because he created you to actually be an image bearer, a ruler, someone who subdues this earth on his behalf. That changes everything. There's the thing that you do, 
And then there's the thing that you really do as a Christian. There's the boss that you have, and then there's the actual real boss that you have. And I just want to invite you to start to dream about what would it do to your life and to your job if you embrace this new vision of work? What would you do if you started to work for Jesus as your real boss and not a paycheck? Not punching a clock, but bringing your best because actually this is something that God has released and redeemed us for. Martin Luther says this, what would you do if Christ himself with all the angels were visibly to descend and command you and your home to sweep your house and wash the pans and kettles? How happy you would feel and would not know how to act for joy, not for the work's sake, but that you knew that you thereby were serving him who is greater than heaven and earth. What you do in your house is worth as much as if you did it up in heaven for our Lord God. We should accustom ourselves to think of our position and work as sacred and well-pleasing to God, not on account of the position and work, but on account of the word and faith from which the obedience and the work flow. And I'll just give you a flyby and I'll be done. I'll close. A flyby of how you and I can actually worship Jesus with our work according to what scripture teaches. Work is worship when we put our whole selves into our work with a view toward pleasing God and not men. Work is worship when we're honest, even when it hurts us or prevents us from getting ahead. Work is worship when we honor our superiors and submit to their authority. Hey, if you're a Christian, stop complaining all the time about stuff at your job. Stop grumbling. Did you know, like, no one actually likes a grumbler. You know what I mean? Like, if, you, if you're the grumbler at your job, don't do that, man. Like, just work for Jesus with joy, even if you hate every minute of it. Work is worship when we treat our work associates with kindness and respect. Work is worship when we expose fraud or dishonesty or unethical behavior. Work is worship when we approach our work prayerfully. Work is worship when we avoid complaining or grumbling, even in less than ideal work situations. Work is worship when we refuse to make work and money our idol. Work is worship when we plan diligently for the future. Work is worship when we live simply and give generously. Work is worship when we trust him to provide today what we need for today. And finally, work is worship when we trust God enough to rest from work to practice Sabbath delight. If you want that list, email me. I'll send this list to you. Look up every reference and allow this to shape your vision of your job. Okay, where do we go from here? I want you to see work as a spiritually formative practice. God doesn't just care about your prayer life. He doesn't just care about your fasting. He doesn't just care about you reading scripture. All that matters significantly, but he cares about the 167 hours between this hour on Sunday. And what you do throughout that week is sacred. It matters. And I want you to learn to see yourself as actually experiencing the presence of God when you drive to work, when you work hard, and you offer that as a sacrifice to Jesus. Amen? Work hard. That's the second thing. Work hard. Christians should be the hardest working people, but not sinfully, not to find identity, not to find you know, security or financial wealth or whatever. We should be the hardest working because Jesus is our boss and we work for him. So let's work heartily for him and let's work excellently for him. You should try to be the best worker at your job. You should be the most creative, the most thoughtful. You should try to save your company money. You should have the most like brilliant. I pray that God would infuse your life with brilliance and wisdom so that you can offer something beautiful, not for the sake of your employer or your job, but for the sake of Jesus himself. 
Number three, don't expect work to be easy. It's not. Bob Thune says, don't expect life to be at work to be peachy. We all know the way too happy Christians who go to work thinking that since they love Jesus, everything's going to work out. It's not. You might miss your quota. You might lose a client. You might get fired. You might have conflict with your boss or your coworkers. These things don't mean that Jesus doesn't love you or that God is punishing you. Rather, they're the inevitable result of living in a fallen world. Remember, thorns and thistles. Work is cursed. Work is affected by the fall. Work doesn't always work the way it should. So have a massively God-sized view of the holiness of work, creation, but be realistic about the fall too. Jesus hasn't come back yet. So don't expect work to be easy. And lastly, practice Sabbath delight. We're going to talk about this next week, but work doesn't work when we don't rest for one day. You are not created to work for seven days. You are created to work for six days and rest one. We'll talk about that next week. I want to invite you, would you stand with me?